right, everybody. Today we're going to talk about headaches. We have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Jackman. He is a pediatric neurologist here at Riley Hospital for Children, and Dr. Jackman specializes in the treatment of headache in our pediatric patients. Welcome, Dr. Jackman. Well, thanks for having me. All right, so we know that headaches are a very common thing that we see in our clinical practice. It's also something that's probably going to be tested on the boards. Um, we are going to do our best in the next 20, 25 minutes to not give you all listeners a headache while we talk about headaches. All right, so Dr. Jackman, from your perspective, what is the best way or what is your way to approach a, a new pediatric patient with headache? So how I always like to approach headache patients is the first thought in your mind is differentiating what are they worried about? Is this a headache problem or is there a medical condition which is causing headaches? Because that is their concern. They want to know that they don't have a tumor, okay? So you have to, through your history, be able to identify red flags that will help you determine whether somebody would be at risk for having a secondary headache, a headache from some other issue, or if they fit very typically with a primary headache disorder like migraine or tension headache, and that will help guide you as to whether you need to order further testing, whether you can simply reassure them. And then once you determine they have a headache disorder, determining which headache disorder that is and how best to treat it. All right. So when we're taking a, a headache history, what are some things that would clue us in to help differentiate types of headaches? So when taking a history, it is the same features that when you take any other sort of history of any other medical condition. The most important part of a headache history is, in my uh, opinion, the time course of the headache. And time course has three main factors. One is, how long have they been having headaches? How long have the headaches been there? Are these new in the last few weeks? Have they been going on for a few months? Have they been going on for years? When they give you how long they've had them, differentiating how long is the total time they've had headaches versus the time that they've had headaches and then had a worsening of headaches. Sometimes patients will tell you they've had headaches for three months when in actuality they've had headaches for three years, but they've had them more over the last three months. So the total duration of their headaches. The other two parts of headache time course are the frequency of the headaches and then the duration of the headaches. So given those three features, you get a good feeling for is there a concerning feature to their headaches and then what type of headache you may be dealing with. Now, when we look at headaches outside of time course, certain red flags that relate would be headaches that are relatively recent. Statistically, a person who's had headaches for a long time is unlikely to have a structural reason. We know the chance of having a structural lesion if you've had headaches for more than a month is very low, and if in more than six months, that it is very, very low. And we know the combination of headaches over six months and a truly normal neuro exam is almost completely reassuring they do not have a structural or other cause of their headaches. Other red flags you want to look out for when taking a headache history. Age is somewhat of one in that you cannot get a good headache history in somebody who's two or three or four years old. So anyone who's younger is more than likely to get a scan, particularly younger than age five. We know that headaches that happen exclusively in the morning can be concerning. Structural lesions cause headaches when they cause increased pressure. Increased pressure can be associated with tumors, with idiopathic intracranial hypertension, with sinus venous thrombosis. So someone who wakes up with a headache every morning, who pukes, who as they're upright, their headache improves, and this recurs every day, would have a concerning history. Migraines can certainly happen more often in the morning, but they should also happen at other times of day. So looking at both the timing of the headaches and them happening more in the morning, and whether the headaches have any positional nature to them, are two important red flags to ask about to help rule out structural lesions. 
Other red flags are headaches that are fixed in a certain location, so fixed in one side, temporally, that are fixed in posterior. Headaches that are in no way migratory, that don't move around, would be relatively concerning. So fixed location headaches that never move and never migrate would also be relative indication to do further neuroimaging. Other red flags to think about would be any sort of focal neurologic sign. Someone with seizures and headaches obviously is going to get scanned. Someone who has a history of tremor, weakness, who has a history of uh, significant cognitive changes at baseline, personality changes, any kind of focal neurodeficit or change in their baseline neurologic status outside of their headaches would be other indication that they need imaging. Okay. All right. Very good. So from a kind of clinical findings, you, you mentioned some of them in your red flags, but are, are there anything on exam that would make you clue you in? to look into this headache a little bit further? So when seeing a patient for headaches, the neurologic exam is very important because if they have a normal neurologic exam, they are unlikely to have a structural lesion, but feeling comfortable that they have a normal neuro examination can take some practice. The most important part of a neurologic examination and the most likely abnormal finding in somebody who has a symptomatic cause of their headaches would be papilledema. So being able to do a good fundoscopy exam takes a lot of practice and a lot of time. And something we are really not that good at, <laughs> honestly. We, we are not that good at and something that I myself struggle with at times. So if you have any suspicion, making sure they have a good dilated eye exam by a professional is always fair to do. The easier part of the examination to do is to check extraocular movements. Very easy, very quick. Patients that have increased intracranial pressure can have six nerve palsies. They'll complain of double vision. You can see that when you're checking the extraocular movements. Any sort of focal weakness, facial drooping, tongue deviation, weakness of grip on either side, any focal finding would be concerning and would be an indication to scan. A tremor, in particularly one hand or another, especially if the tremor is new, would indicate neuroimaging. Any child that really has a significant tremor, I will generally image, headaches or not. Um, So tremor is something to be aware of. Um, Gait is very important because it assesses a lot of things. It assesses coordination. It assesses strength. Um, so doing a good gait exam, watching them walk, and making sure they're not having any particular uh, weakness or ataxia while walking is, is the other more important part. Excellent. All right, so if we take a good history and there's something that's concerning in our history and we want to consider further workup, what type of workup is appropriate for patients with headache? So the first question is always neuroimaging and whether to do neuroimaging. When evaluating somebody for headaches in the outpatient setting, I will almost exclusively order an MRI scan. There's a couple reasons for that. One is obviously it lacks radiation. So if you're going to do imaging, MRI is always preferable to CT. It does require sedation in younger children, which is, I think, a a reasonable trade-off. If you have concern enough to do a scan, you would still do an MRI scan. Acutely, when somebody presents to the emergency room with a severe headache, when you're worried about hemorrhage, when you don't have access to MRI, a CT is certainly a reasonable and appropriate first step. If they still have concerning headaches in a normal CT, then MRI would be the next test to order when available. The other consideration is that while a CT may look normal, there are findings on MRI scans, such as a Chiari 1 malformation, which may not show up on a CT because with CTs, you're generally doing axial cuts and they're hard to see without a good sagittal slice. So MRI would be the standard of choice, except for those emergency situations, very acute nuance at headache. 
Other testing we do for headaches is fairly limited and unproven. If you have any concern of increased intracranial pressure, say somebody who has intracranial hypertension, papilledema, then a lumbar puncture would be the next most appropriate step. Obviously, in any of those cases, you would do neuroimaging first because you don't know if papilledema would be from a structural lesion or would be from an idiopathic cause. So after neuroimaging, if they have papilledema, then usually during uh, a lumbar puncture to check for opening pressure. Obviously, lumbar puncture is indicated if you're concerned about meningitis or encephalitis. Um, laboratory testing for headaches is really unproven. Um, often, things that will get checked will be uh, a cell count to look for anemia, iron studies, magnesium, B12 levels, coenzyme Q10 levels, vitamin D levels. These all have really scant scientific evidence, so even though a lot of us do them, their actual utility is, is debatable. All right, very good, thank you. All right, so we've taken a good history, we've done our physical exam, and we think that this is more consistent with a primary headache type. So can we talk a little bit more about primary headaches? So a primary headache disorder is a headache disorder that is intrinsic to the patient, that is not caused by a clear outside source. When you are evaluating primary headache disorders, statistically the most common headache to lead someone to seek a doctor's care would be migraine. If you have a working comfort level with what is migraine, what isn't migraine, that can help you decide also about when to be concerned for other potential headache disorders. With migraine, the criteria include having a headache that lasts over four hours, to say you have a diagnosis of migraine, you have to have at least five attacks of migraine. There are two other main criteria. Of the first set, you have to have at least two of the following. The first is moderate to severe intensity, unilateral location, throbbing or pounding, and exacerbated by or causes avoidance of activity. In most children, the fact that they will lay down with their headaches, not want to participate, implies that their headache is at least moderate to severe and will also imply that they're avoiding activity. So if they withdraw due to their headaches and don't participate, you will probably meet that first set of criteria. The second criteria is they have to have one of the following two things. The first is nausea or vomiting, and the second is light and sound sensitivity, photo and phonophobia. If they have one of those two things, then you can say they have migraine. In children, migraines are somewhat shorter, usually two hours in duration, where in adults they have to be four hours in duration. The other difference in children is that more often they will not describe throbbing and they are less likely to be unilateral. So what about our other types of primary headaches, cluster headaches, uh, tension headaches? So tension headaches are the most common type of headache. The difference between tension headaches and migraine are that tension headaches tend to be mild to moderate in severity, where migraines tend to be moderate to severe. Tension headaches do not tend to cause nausea. They can cause light or sound sensitivity, but do not tend to cause both. Their duration can be different. It can be shorter, 30 minutes, or it can be as long as migraines in the several hour range. I think the best differentiator between tension and migraine is that while migraines tend to be exacerbated by activity, say if you walk up a flight of stairs, your migraine becomes worse, tension headaches tend to be more distractible. If you get into an activity and you stop thinking about your headache and you don't notice it, then more likely you're dealing with a tension headache than a migraine. Tension headaches are treated by lifestyle changes first and pharmacology second, so addressing their sleep, their diet, any psychiatric comorbidities usually is good enough to improve their tension headaches. Studying for boards. Studying for boards, <laughs> being a resident, not sleeping, all of those things. With cluster headache, 
These are rare in children, but are important because they are somewhat different. The main reason cluster headaches are important is because they're often symptomatic of an underlying lesion. And they can overlap in their description a lot with migraine. The difference between cluster headache and migraine is cluster headaches on average are shorter. They can be anywhere from 15 to 180 minutes in length. They can happen multiple times per day. They tend to happen in clusters that last for weeks or months, and then they go into remission for several months before recurring. With cluster headaches, the difference is that they are actually more severe than migraine. Patients with cluster headache have autonomic symptoms. They have lacrimation, rhinorrhea, conjunctival injection. Uh, they can have pupillary changes, ptosis, and they can have a sense of agitation. See them be restless than wanting to be still and quiet. They will pace around the room. Patients with cluster headaches have pain behind their eye. It's a sharp, stabbing pain right through their eyeball versus migraine, which tends to be more frontal, more temporal. Okay. They're more discreet, but more intense and more frequent. All right, very good. So I think that kind of covers our primary headache types. Uh, the boards want us to know a little bit about treatment of migraines. So do you mind t telling us a little bit about uh, migraine treatment? So migraine treatment can be placed into two major categories. One are acute or abortive treatments, which are those given at the time of a migraine. The other is preventative medications, medications that are given on a daily basis to decrease the frequency of migraines. When we talk about the use of acute medications, timing is important. It's important to take it early in the course of the headache. You have to monitor for analgesic overuse headache. So if triptans are used more than 10 days a month or common analgesics more than 15 days per month, this can cause an increase in headache frequency. First-line medications are generally going to be non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, ibuprofen being the most common. You want to use an appropriate dose for weight of 10 milligrams per kilogram. Give the treatment early. These can be combined with an anti-emetic if they have vomiting to ensure that the medication is able to be absorbed. Uh, Second-line treatment for migraine are generally going to be triptans. The most common one used in children is risotriptan or Maxalt, which is approved age 6 and up. Triptans have a very good safety profile in children. They are contraindicated in those that have cardiovascular risk factors due to the fact they can narrow coronary vessels. Other common side effects of triptans are chest and throat tightness, flushing, nausea, dizziness. Triptans are very timing dependent and work much better earlier in the headache than they do later in the headache. Risotriptan comes in doses of 5 and 10 milligrams and comes as a dissolvable form. Sumatriptan is approved in the nasal form in teenagers and in the tablet and subcutaneous form in adults. Both are effective and may be more effective when combined with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Triptans can also be combined with anti-emetics. Other treatments which are considered migraine uh, include aspirin, which is actually very effective for migraine, but is avoided in younger children due to the risk of Rye syndrome. And there are various other formulations of internasal DHE, uh, which can be used... All right, so we kind of have a look at some abortives um, for our migraine treatments. Now, if somebody comes in and they meet criteria for status migranosis, I know that we can kind of escalate therapies. Um, what, what is the standard treatment or typical treatment for that? So first-line treatment generally is going to be IM or IV ketorolac, and prochlorperazine can be very effective. Failing those... IV doses of magnesium and valproic acid can be helpful. 
IV steroids by themselves are probably ineffective, but when given in combination with another treatment such as valproate and magnesium, comma, they can decrease the risk of headache recurrence. When patients have true status migranosis, which is not amenable to first-line IV treatments, they can be admitted for scheduled intravenous dihydroergotamine, or DHE, which is also, like triptans, contraindicated in heart disease, but which is effective when given every eight hours for a period of several days. Okay. Yeah, that, that kind of tips a little bit into my wheelhouse in the emergency department and kind of the headache cocktail, if you will. So often includes an antiemetic um, such as propylopyrazine and a IV catorolac plus or minus steroid. It's my typical let them sleep a little bit and hopefully break that headache cycle. So if we are thinking more on the preventative aspect of migraine treatment, what would you recommend? So in general, there are four main classes of preventatives which are used. There are some supplements which can be helpful for headache prevention with some scientific evidence such as magnesium, riboflavin, and coenzyme Q10. These are probably not effective in the more severe headaches but can help for somebody who does not want to use a prescription medication but wants to use something to decrease their headache frequency. Other classes of prescription migraine medications we use start with cyproheptadine, which is an antihistamine. It works fairly well, both in younger kids traditionally, but I've even had some luck with it in teenagers. Cyproheptadine is a potent appetite stimulant, so if you have kids who have trouble with appetite and headaches, it can be helpful. For kids who are already overweight, it is probably a medication to avoid. It can cause some sleepiness, so it's best given at bedtime. Tricyclist can be helpful for migraine prevention. Amitriptyline at a dose of anywhere from 25 to 150 milligrams can be helpful. Side effects of amitriptyline to monitor for include any of the typical anticholinergic effects, dry mouth, constipation, weight gain. It can cause QT prolongation, particularly if somebody, say, has a genetic predisposition like Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Amitriptyline can cause tachycardia and it can worsen mood changes and can be fatal in overdose. So a careful screen if anybody's starting on a tricyclic to ensure they would not be at risk for uh, overdose is important. Anticonvulsants are used, such as uh, topiramate or valproic acid. Topiramate is used very commonly. And possible side effects of topiramate include uh, 50% of patients who get paresthesias, about 20% of patients exhibit word-finding difficulties, it can decrease your appetite. It can decrease your sweating and increase risk of overheating when temperatures are increased, and it can, at higher doses, cause kidney stones. Valproic acid is not used much as a headache preventative because it causes rather significant birth defects. It also is not well tolerated because it can cause hair loss, acne, weight gain, which are not popular in teenagers. <laughs> so it has largely been supplanted by topiramate. The last class of medications typically used for migraine are beta blockers, such as propranolol or atenolol. Beta blockers have to be used with caution in patients with asthma, as they can exacerbate asthma symptoms. They can also cause depression, rarely. More commonly, what you'll see is a decrease in heart rate, which can affect patients' uh, endurance and their exercise tolerance, which has to be watched for. Other medications, such as Rapamil as a calcium channel blocker, can be used for migraine prevention, but are probably not quite as effective. All right. Very good. Well, I mean, I think that's a pretty good overview of headaches, and I think there's a lot of high-yield points in there. 
Hopefully you didn't get a headache listening to us uh, talk about this today, but good news is it's probably a a primary headache type if you got one while listening. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Jackman. No problem. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.